Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Paul Haywood, the author and columnist, and by David Priest, the coach and commentator. I've been to see Brendan Rodgers at Leicester. He's facing the latest must-win game at home to Leeds on Thursday night. Being bottom of the league, with only one win, exerts persistent and inevitable pressure that breaks many managers. Before we hear from him, an equally inevitable question, Paul. Is Rogers wearing out his welcome in the last chance saloon? He's certainly in a very tricky position, Mike. I mean, they finished fifth, fifth and eighth in the last three seasons. They won the FA Cup two years ago, the Premier League in 2016. And yet there they are at the bottom of the table, five points from 10 games. I think the clue is in the goals against column. They've conceded more goals than... Anyone else in the league, that's 24 goals against their bottom after Nottingham Forest draw at Brighton. That's a very unflattering position and it suggests a very sharp descent in the team and the club to some extent. And you can see why it doesn't feel like a blip. It feels like something a bit more serious. Mm. That squad has been depleted, you know, mainly for financial reasons, David, but it does still seem less than the sum of its parts. Now, you know, you've been around the game all your life. Is this notion of players not playing for a manager, is it real or is it a bit of a media myth? Well, I, I certainly think that it's a real rarity when you get a, a proper mutiny of players down in tools, but it's not been dressing rooms where there's, you know, there's been meetings called and there's been votes taken on whether the, the team need to go to the, the owner or the chairman about who should be the next manager or, or to get rid of the current manager. And it's, yeah, like I said, it, it's very rare, but it's been a bit of a perfect storm of things this season. You know, obviously the the transfer uh, policy this season has been a tightening of belts, and maybe it's a bit of a reality check. And and I think that all that has to be taken into consideration. Different players maybe being distracted with, with transfer rumours, and 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 again a bunch of players there who who've been there a long time. Now you want stability at a club. But certainly, in the amount of time that Brendan's been there, there's there's probably no need for revolution, but there is a need for for evolution as as the team goes on. And I think one of the biggest problems with football these days, and certainly when it comes to management, is that no team is really allowed a, an average season. There always has to be progress. And I think that once that's 
progress either plateaus or just falls off a little bit and then there's real panic stations and it's yeah it, it's sad to see because you, you see a lot of managers now that's you know a total lot of managers in and out of the game there's a there's a real disillusionment with it because it's just because the expectation like I said not every team's going to progress in a sort of linear line and for me there always has to be a, a realism around having an average season or having a little bit of an off season or where there's, there's a transition nobody's really allowed it maybe it's apart from the very few have, have sort of earned that through many many years at a club mm, yeah well as you say someone like Brendan Rodgers has seen this movie before he's worked under pressure at Liverpool and understands the intensity of expectation from his time with Celtic management it seems is a state of mind So, Brendan, thank you for joining us. Now, I realise most football conversations don't begin with a quote from an ancient Chinese philosopher. But, you know, I know you're a broad thinker, so here goes. Lao Tzu said sometime in around about the 5th century BC, know yourself and you will win all battles. What are you discovering about yourself in this rough spell? How I deal with pressure. I think that's the, um, probably the ultimate thing that, that in this job that comes before you, like you'll hear it in press conferences, you hear, you get asked a lot and it's a huge part of the game, you know, dealing with the pressure. And that can be when you're clearly doing well also, but certainly when you're sat towards the bottom of the league, then you definitely find out about yourself and how you regulate that pressure and how you deal with it. Because watching you in those situations, I'm seeing an experienced manager who can deal with that reality that at any one point in time, there's always one manager who's under the microscope and mm. you know, being asked some searching questions. You're an experienced manager. Is that an environment in which a less experienced manager can crumble? I think it's just experience. You have to go through it. You have to go through it. And, and I equate it to, it's like age in life. You know, you're 10 years of age, you're totally different at 18. You're a different person, different feelings, understand the world a little bit better. Management's exactly the same in terms of, if I look at year one, and I look now, the numbers of games further down the line, how you deal with things become a little bit more automated. Why? Because you've been through them before, you know? So there's not too many situations as you, as you come through as a manager that maybe you've not been when you've had experience, but I think at the very beginning, it's, uh, it's tough. Because mm. the, the job is, has a, a real sense of almost like personal responsibility to others. Mm. Uh, um, you know, speaking to someone like Stu Webber at Norwich was saying that he felt that he'd personally let down every supporter of his club when Norwich were relegated. Mm. You know, he said they looked at me as though I'd you know, killed their pet dog or whatever. Yeah. How conscious are you of that? You know, we hear about the noise of the game, the fans, but at its basic level, they care about something and it's your job to almost, you know, you're entrusted with that care, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that that's why you you love the world 
the passion of the work is because one, you enjoy making players better and developing players, but also so that the supporters have pride in seeing their team. So when we were winning the FA Cup, it was a proud moment for the supporters and you take great joy in that. Whenever you see the team, then the position that we're in, then of course, it doesn't give you a good feeling because you know that people's lives are totally absorbed by their football club. Mm. And you know that when they're not having a good time, that can affect their social life as well. So yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm fully aware that uh, the responsibility that you have as a manager and what you can do to people's lives. What have been the most important areas of your own personal development, do you think, you know, since you began your coaching career, what, 20-odd years ago? I definitely think in recognising the, the managing aspect of it. I think I was always, as you're well aware, Michael, I was never a big player, so my, I threw myself into everything coaching and teaching. And then as you come through life and, and you come along that coaching line, you realise then you move in towards the management sector. Coaching is my is my passion, is my love, so I'm, I'm always out there. But you also identify that managing people is important. So, so that side of it has developed as I've progressed mm -hmm. because of understanding the importance of, of managing people. That you can be a great coach, but if you then can't manage the person and talk to them and empathise with them, then that can be challenging for you. It seems to me that the, the nature of the modern player is changing. You know, we read of some players spending a lot of their own money on their own personal development, mm. you know, talking to neuroscientists. Has there been a definable change in the nature of the players that you're coaching now than when you started? 100%. Yeah, I think the players now have a greater understanding, a greater knowledge of the game in terms of the science of the game, the psychology of the game, and it's totally different to what it was 20 odd years ago. I think there's 100% there's more information now for the players, which can also give them 100% more problems. But it's definitely, there's a clear difference now in players, one, because they, they understand more, I would say, more about the sports science side of the game and the psychology side, mm -hmm. which clearly is, is related to society because of social media and everything else. There's, there's much more of an awareness now. You've spoken about concentration being an issue during games this season in particular. Can you coach concentration? Well, I think it's something that you look to replicate in training, it's something that a lot of it comes from within. You know, you're probably more skilled and more more knowledge around that, Michael, than and through the people you've spoken to. But certainly for me, I think it's something that it's a bit of both. You try to replicate it in the training. You identify areas in the game situations where you can't afford to to lose concentration. But there's also a cognitive thing, I think, there as well which maybe is to do with kids and learning and, and development, which you can maybe only get to a certain limit with concentration, you know, because I think everything has limits, you know. The trees don't grow to the sky. <laughs> There's a limit. And I think with some people's, no matter how good a player they can be, there's a limit in terms of whatever that is.
you know. But mm-hmm. certainly, it's something you have to try and uh, and build into your program. Mm. Speaking of players, I'm thinking specifically of, of the restrictions that you've obviously had going into this season. The players, like fans, do they buy into this narrative that? It's got to be perpetual recruitment. You've got to get players through the door, new guys. Now, that might cost them their places, ultimately. Mm. But does it reassure them in some strange way when they, you know, three or four or five or six bodies turn up for pre-season? Well, yeah, I think they recognise that within a team sport, it is about the team. And it's about quality. And it's about progress. And... Listen, every player wants to play every game, but they also want to play with good players. And they also will understand when a team will need refreshing. And so they understand that, you know, I've been in the game now long enough where, as an example, I've had players at 11 o'clock at night texting me, asking if we're getting players in. You know, why? And that's because they want to improve. They want to improve the, the team and they want to develop the team. So yeah, I think it's, it's listen, recruitment is, is absolutely key in this modern age, but also stability. You know, you, you still have to have, you know, grow and develop and that's what we try to do. But of course that freshness and, and competition for players, that's what can bring out the best in, in players as well. Are we seeing in this spell almost you know, a natural consequence of a club pausing for breath? in a game that's hyperventilating. Yeah, it's a good way to to put it. I think that the, the club strategically have looked at it and had to assess it after the pandemic and understand where they're at, you know, especially with some of the money and investments that's coming in to the Premier League. So there's a realisation of one, where the club is at. We were competing at a level for a few years, which is, is difficult to sustain when you don't have the, the resources. of If you look at Arsenal and Tottenham, for example, 18 months ago, you know, you would argue we were in, in a position above them and, and where we were in the league. But then they've been able to recruit and bring in top, top players, which has elevated them onto, you know, the level that they're at now. So, yeah, that's the challenge always for clubs like ourselves. Mm-hmm. Do you think the title win and the subsequent success under you has fundamentally changed attitudes and expectations at this club? I don't think there's any any question of that. I think that uh, when you trace back, it was an incredible story, an iconic story to win the league. And then obviously we have challenging for Champions League and then we win the FA Cup and Community Shields. And, and it's something that I've always said that Building on success in football for a club like Garcia is very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult because I think people thought, right, this is the foundation now. And now you can add even more resources to go and compete. It's a big challenge. Do you think, looking at the game in general, you've noted there Arsenal and Tottenham spending huge sums to almost retain their place in Mm. in, in the traditional top six. Is there a sense now that the bigger clubs, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, but 
are the bigger clubs beginning to draw up the drawbridge? So in other words, they're trying to make that top six, maybe top seven with Newcastle, almost like a, a members club. No, uh, listen, I think as long as you know where you sit in the hierarchy of, of the league, if you have a good strategic plan, you know that it's always going to be difficult to compete at that level financially. But it doesn't mean you can't be competitive on the pitch. And I think we've shown that over these last numbers of years. And I think that's, you know, you have to understand where you're at. You know, I've worked at Liverpool, so I understand the, the dynamics of a, of a worldwide institution and the differences that is there. And another scale at Celtic, which is a, a worldwide club also, but in a different league. But I think our, our aspirations, you want to be competitive against those bigger clubs. But, uh, and that's something we always have to look to do. Mm. Is that intensity that you became used to, both on Merseyside and in Glasgow, been a positive help for you in this situation? 100%. 100%. Though, again, that experience, those, you know, I was a very young manager at Liverpool as well, but those experiences have helped me enormously, you know, in coping with, with pressure and and regulating it. And like I said, knowing that, you know, the difficult moments don't last. You just got to use your common sense, keep your patience and keep looking forward. Speaking last week to Frank Lampard, you know, he talked about losing his job at Chelsea being a blow to his pride, but it also reflected on how obsessional he had become. He'd go home, he would, he would be there, but not be there, if you know mm. what I mean. Has there been any time in this spell where you've gone home and been unable to switch off from all this? Yeah, no, it's, it's always there. But I said, I think with what I've been able to do is, is in the last number of years of my career is put a timeline on it. Otherwise, it will. It can... It can be there all the time, and it is always there, but I tend to give 24 hours to a win, loss, or a draw, and analyse and reflect on whatever the outcome. You've got to go again, because the next one's just around the corner, and you've got to inspire, and you've got to learn, and, and if you're the leader and you're anchored by disappointment, then what I've learned in my time as a manager is that there's an emotional connection between you and the players. And if you're down, you're not up there. They can certainly be that. Because mm. a lot of you know, other managers have said to me, what I want to do is go into my training ground on a Monday and not recognise whether we won, lost or drew mm. on a Saturday. that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And that's, that's the environment that you, you're always trying to create. And that will be through leadership. Mm. You know, that comes in from being in, being bright, let's go again. Yeah. You know, you've spoken in the past of something has to come from within mm. to be successful in, in this particular game. As a final point, what are you looking for from your players, your staff, and probably most pertinently, yourself? Continual effort. I think success normally comes from that sort of grit and determination and resilience. And, and if I ask someone, especially at this level, will you take talent or effort? I would take effort. 
because you've got talent to be at this level. And it's now going to be the extra bit of effort, that extra bit of resilience that's going to allow you to get through and succeed. Mm. And I would give that message to, to everyone. Brendan, thanks for your time. Pleasure. Thank you, my man. So, Paul, I was intrigued by one word he used to describe the response of an experienced manager to consistent pressure, and that's automated. I thought it was really intriguing insight into someone almost getting into a little personal bunker, if you like. What impression did he leave with you? Yeah, I think he's trained himself, as many managers have, to deal with this kind of vortex that they know is coming at some point. They know that most of the, or a lot of the decisions around football, and certainly a lot of the, the verdicts on social media and in the crowd, aren't always rational. And they know that things are going to get out of control quite quickly and that they can't manage every pressure that's on them. So Brendan Rogers sounds to me like someone who's who's decided that he needs to think ahead and think through it and just go with the process. We all know what the process is, you know, the damning verdicts, the calls for him to be sacked, the pressure from above, the pressure from below. And it sounds like he's adopted an almost psychological device, as I suspect many managers have, just to try to ride it out and get to the other side of it you know, and hope he comes through unscathed. So that's experience, I think, that does that for you. They know how it works. They know what they have to do. They don't give people easy hits, easy meat. And they just try and trudge through it and, and do their work and turn up and, you know, go through the motions, stick to the basics and try and get the team going again. The team isn't really getting going again. They've got a chance tomorrow against Leeds or today against Leeds and um, they need to take it. They certainly do. When you're in a dressing room, David, you know, there's no hiding place, okay? When a player sees a manager under pressure, does that almost contribute to the, you know, almost ratchet up the pressure because, you know, they see someone who's struggling? Yes, certainly. But I also think that um, when it comes to that situation, it, it, a lot of the stuff's subconscious. So when you talk about players not playing for a manager or, or, you know, just missing that five or ten extra percent that, that's going to win matches. It, it's not something that's conscious in a, in a player's mind, but also it's it's something that's that, that feeds into the dressing room as well. And, you know, if they know that a manager's under pressure, then it, it transfers into the, into the dressing room and they can they can feel themselves under pressure. And whichever way they think about it, whether they, you know, they dislike the manager or they, they want to change the manager or they want to do well for the manager and still have a negative effect because then they, you know, they, they try and change the way that they play and the, the way they approach games and that pressure mounts and, and it leads to either sort of um, just bad performances or numbing their performances a little bit. As much as you can you can do as a, as a manager and a coaching staff, it's about trying to keep players focused on, on the games themselves and it's so difficult, especially for managers, to try and shut out that noise. You know, you look at all the press conferences now that's, that Brendan's going through. Every question's about his future. We'll go on to talk about different issues that managers have got to deal with later on, I think. But that's just the hardest thing for, for a manager is to keep everyone focused on, their, on just the football itself. Mm. I thought a key admission, Paul, was that expectations at the club, around the club, have changed you know, probably irrevocably. And there aren't clubs, well, certainly those ones without an endless supply of money, by their nature, aren't they finite things, a bit like the teams that represent them? 
Yes, I mean, they created a bit of a burden for themselves. Leicester winning the Premier League, I think, was the greatest story in the in the Premier League era. 2016, they won the league with a, with a team that, you know, doesn't get the credit it deserves. It wasn't a fluke. They were a fantastically effective team. They won the league comfortably. As I said earlier, they won the FA Cup five years later. So if you do that at Leicester, you've created an expectation for yourself. The expectation is born of the success you've had. And if you finish fifth, fifth and eighth, you've also created an expectation that's going to carry on ad infinitum. But of course, it doesn't work like that. It was incredibly difficult for Leicester to get to those positions and win those trophies in those five years. And now they're left answering for that all the time. What they're doing now is judged against what they did in those five years. And as Dave said earlier, it doesn't it doesn't always follow that you're going to carry on on that path. I mean, where do they go from fifth, you know? Are they going to win the league again in the next 10 years? It's extremely doubtful. So they're carrying the burden to some extent of their successful past. And the question is always whether the owners are ready to commit to maintain that success. At the moment, it looks to me like they're not really. They've sort of accepted that they've they've had their moment and what they're trying to do now is just consolidate and stick there and see how things turn out. But if you do that in the Premier League, as we know, you can sink pretty quickly. You can go from a mid-table club to being down in the relegation zone in five matches. Yeah, that interview was conducted at Leicester's new training ground, which frankly is one of the best I've ever seen. And that is absolute concrete proof, quite literally in many cases, of the ambition behind the club or the initial ambition behind the club. Dave, when you when you look at clubs like Leicester, what would we lose if the dreams that they embody are just dissipated and the trophies are, are shared out by the usual suspects? Yeah, I, th- I think that was it. That was the, the hope that they could sort of push on a little bit further and just and upset the status quo a little bit. And and what that leads to, it leads to, to greater income and uh, and perhaps, you know, more money available to to be able to buy those players that can keep them at that level. And I think that, you know, we, we talk about teams evolving and or not being allowed to evolve. They've it's it's one of the biggest problems that probably Ben Rogers had to deal with. The fact that you have that success and then do you gamble with it? Do you gamble with it by, you know, changing coaching staff so people hearing different voices? Are you having to uh, remove big characters from the dressing room like he has done with Kasper Schmeichel where leaders sort of become a problem because their influence is too great? So there's all these problems that he's had to deal with it. And I think that's what's that's what people don't understand that's or maybe don't understand so much that football is all tactics and formations and it's really important but it's almost a given at that level that those managers in the Premier League that's what they're good at I think managers now more more so than ever have got to um, have got to be more personable with the, with the players there's, there's more contact between manager and player and conversations and with other coaching staff than there ever has been and I think that's yeah, it. Brenda did say, didn't he, that the nature of the, the modern player has changed. Do you agree with that? Oh, certainly. They certainly need more sort of one-to-one time and more explanations. And and I, and I still know that some managers don't like doing that, you know, even explaining why players have been dropped before the game. and But it, it's just not just nature of the player, it's the nature of the game. Now it, it, needs, to, it needs to happen a lot more. And I think that's where I, uh, you know... We've heard stories this week about, you know, people try to detract away from how Brendan is as a person, you know, try to sort of 
go back 10, 15 years ago when he was a, a manager at Redden and bring up stories about the way that he was. And listen, that's a young manager, you know, maybe being in uncomfortable situations where he hasn't been in before. And then this is a, two decades later where he's it's a total different animal and, and, he, and he, he will be used to those conversations. Yeah, it, it's a huge part of management these days. Mm. Yeah, Brenda did say, Paul, trees don't grow to the sky, which was a bit of a new one on me. Was that failed confirmation of the limitations of some of his player, or was he trying to make some sort of wider philosophical point? That phrase really jumped out on me because I first heard it when I interviewed Roy Hodgson for The Observer when he was at Fulham. He cited this Scandinavian phrase, which I think he characterised it as no tree grows to heaven. And what that means, as he explained it, was that some clubs have limitations. He was trying to say that, look, Fulham can go so far, but no further. He was trying to guard against this idea that because they were in the Europa League final, that eventually they'd be in the Champions League final and challenging for the Premier League. He was trying to say, you've, you've got to accept that you can only go so far sometimes in the game. So if that's what Brendan Rodgers is saying, it makes sense because you would look at Leicester's situation and say, there's no way they're going to be able to challenge Man City and Chelsea and Liverpool and the rest of them. But as I said, the problem is they've got this legacy of recent success that they're judged against. So what they're saying there is, actually, we had a good run, but now we're going to know our place and regress and just sit tight and try and hang on in the Premier League. And, and obviously no Leicester City fan wants to hear that, even though you can understand why Brendan Rodgers, to take pressure off himself, would want to say it. Yeah, another key game which will emphasise the pressure on managers on Thursday night, Aston Villa at Fulham. It does seem, doesn't it, Dave, that patience is running out with Steve and Gerrard. A lot of stories about them pitching for Pochettino. You know, the old trope, two games to save his job. Where are we with that, do you think? I think even Stephen acknowledges himself when he's been interviewed. You know, he knows the pressure that he's under. He knows the situation. And it's probably the first time in his in his short managerial career that you know he's faced with this I think that's probably the problem where you've got with you know the likes of Stephen and, and Frank Lampard the company's job is at a higher level it's all the first time they're they're facing these problems it's at a it's at the highest level they can, they can face and it's the the most strenuous pressure that they're being put under of course as a players they, they've they've handled that but this is different it's a total different responsibility that you, you've got as a manager and I think that um Difficult to shy away from the fact that he is under pressure. Like I said, he knows that. Everyone else knows it. And the only thing that will rectify that is wins. And I think there's a difference between, between being under pressure and then now other managers are being sort of pulled into the frame as well and to add that pressure onto him. So it's, again, it's, it is really all about him concentrating the football. That's all he can do for the next two games, if that's the case. But certainly, will those two wins actually contribute to turning things around fully? It only remains to be seen. Mm. Yeah, it's it's almost in some ways another sort of the other side of the Leicester coin here, isn't it, Paul? And you know, Aston Villa have spent a lot of money in the last three or four years, new owners willing to invest, but they're not seeing too much bang for their buck, are they? No, when you go from basically fighting relegation and trying to stay in the league to having the kind of ambitions that the, their spending suggests they have. Obviously, it's right on the toes of the manager to justify that level of spending. So far, the team is out of sync with the investment. It's out of sync with the 
with the names that they brought in, you know, there are a lot of good players in that squad and they should be higher in the table. So, so then you ask yourself, well, what isn't quite functioning with the team? Is it, is it to do with Steven Gerrard's methodology? Are certain key players underperforming? They certainly are. I think, you know, Coutinho, for example, isn't working out this season as a, as a playmaker. And ultimately, I think the pressure's on Steven Gerrard really just to find that formula, that way of playing that gets the best out of the players he has. And at first I thought, well, what he's done here is he's turned this into a Steven Gerrard team. They look like a kind of Liverpool team from his era, you know, direct when they wanted to be quite spiky, aggressive, positive, united. But that hasn't turned out to be enough so far. So he's he's really looking for now, I think, a, a system of play and a pattern that the players can kind of bed in with and allow the young players to, to, to develop because he has got good young players there as well, not just household names. But that has eluded him so far. And it's it's a slight mystery as to why it's eluded him. And obviously, he's, he's he hasn't got much time left, really, to, to get it working. Yeah, time is of the essence here, isn't it? You know, we're talking on Wednesday morning. You know, let's be honest, and we've all been around football long enough to know that he could be gone by Wednesday afternoon. You never know, do you? And the, the whole almost apparent illogicality of it, David, I'm looking at Nottingham Forest here. They're, they drew at Brighton on Tuesday night. Now, Steve Cooper has got a new contract. Was that fan power or just the sort of latest knee-jerk reaction to a difficult reintroduction to the Premier League? I think initially you think that it's it's the right thing to do to to, to back the manager to go, go against the grain a little bit when everyone expecting Steve Cooper lose your job, just to back him. But also then you you think a little bit deep and it's probably a, a little carries a little bit favour with the fans with regards to the owner Maranakis as well. You know it, it probably buys him a little bit of space, a bit of breathing space, and to distance himself from from any criticism. But then you you know you. You look at the last few days when they've, the head of recruitment and uh, director of football have, have gone. And so who, who's responsible for that? Who's responsible for for their appointment? You know, it's it's still this, it's still an admission that you've got something wrong. And and to allow them to, you know, they're probably the ones, well, from the outside, they're the ones responsible for bringing those, all those players in, in that quantity. Now, if you've allowed them to do that. It's the same as bringing in a manager, allowing to sign lots of players that he wants and then sack him a few weeks later. But now it's, it's Steve Cooper's in a difficult position. He's still in, you know, he, he saw the game last night, you know, it was nil-nil, but it was it was nil-nil going on 4-5 nil uh, to Brighton, you know. And he, he's certainly trying to start from the back and, and work forwards and make them a little bit more solid and not concede as many goals. They've kept a couple of clean sheets now. But is that going to be enough to, to sustain them in the Premier League? Probably not. Mm-hmm. That must have been deja vu for you, Paul, as a, as a Brighton follower. Uh, yeah, uh, and it, it shows you what a great manager Graham Potter's been because Graham Potter's managed to conceal the lack of a reliable striker in that Brighton team, a lack of a prolific striker. The approach play was so good under him and so many people got, a, got involved and chipped in with goals that you could just about get away with not having a striker in the last three games. I mean, they did score three at Anfield, we should remember that, only a couple of weeks ago. But since then, the goals have disappeared. And it's like, it is a bit like watching an old movie of a team that, you know, gets to the edge of the box and then can't finish. 
that will worry the new manager. He's got, I think, two points from 12 now. Uh, there's been a bit of a drop-off and he's going to need to work out how he gets around the problem of Danny Welbeck not scoring at the moment, hasn't scored this season. Mope, who wasn't a prolific scorer, has gone. They are definitely lacking goals. Yeah, I'll, to stay with you, Paul, Forrest have got Liverpool at home on Saturday in the BT Sport match. I thought Steve Cooper made a really interesting and very pertinent point of criticising the social media output of his own club before that uh, defeat by Wolves. We're in, living in an age where social media teams at clubs want to be a bit clever, clever, don't they? Is this just an unnecessary distraction? Well, of course, football clubs have decided they're media companies as well now, and they've got accountants telling them that that social media numbers can be monetized and they produce revenue because they increase the value of your deals and your advertising and your sponsorships and all the rest of it. So this is why clubs are so keen on them. But of course, what they're trying to do is appeal to a much younger audience, a, a more irreverent kind of social media audience where anything goes. So very often they're sticking no disrespect to 24-year-olds, but 24-year-old people in charge of the social media accounts, they've got a completely different view of the world to the manager. They are more irreverent. They are cheeky. They're, they're ironic. They're trying to get attention. They're trying to be noticed. They're trying to be funny. And often, I should think, the manager, if they ever bother to look at these social media feeds, as Steve Cooper clearly did, you know, would be horrified because they're thinking, hang on, I'm trying to, I'm trying to win games here and you're trying to crack jokes. So <laughs> there's a disconnect. Yeah, well, that's the traditional resort, isn't it? Sticking it up on the dressing room wall, Dave. You've had a few of those, presumably. Oh, certainly, but from Steve Cooper's point of view, the last thing you want to be talking about in a press conference is a social media post. It must be so frustrating from, especially, again, you know, you've got the pressures of the Premier League, you're not doing well, there's lots of noise going around your club for different reasons. You just want to talk about the football. I think even, you know, you know, last night at his post-match press conference, I think that's the fact that he was allowed to to talk about the football, he was talking about the game. He even he was aware himself that he was going on and on and on because he's probably been that used to talking about his own future, talking about social media posts, just talking about the football, that's it. And it's it's a huge distraction and massively frustrating for, for managers to have to be talking about things like that. Mm. Yeah, Paul, you know, we all know that the sacking culture is universal. You only have to look at League 1. Five managers have gone in the last week, which is a quarter of the managers in that particular league. Is it getting worse? Yes, because I think the owners have convinced themselves that it doesn't matter, that you can get away with it, that it works. In the past, when you sack managers all the time, everybody said, well, that club's unstable and instability can't breed success. But I think there's a, there's a kind of breed of owner now that, that thinks, actually, forget all that. If there's a downturn over 10 games, we'll just get rid of the manager, can't get rid of the players, that's too expensive. So get rid of the manager, start again, and, and actually that will produce a, an upswing. They're looking at it on business graphs. They're, they're treating football as a, as a sort of, you know, any other kind of commodity. Whereas the conventional wisdom was that if you kept sacking managers, you'd pay for it. You'd get punished for it because you'd build instability into your football club. They don't seem to see it that way. They'll look at their algorithm and say, this guy's had six um, bad games in a row. There's obviously some kind of deterioration. Get him out. Yeah. Well, Wolves have you know, got 
their particular manager out. They lost at Palace on Tuesday night, which presumably adds a bit of urgency to their search for a replacement for Bruno Large. Turned down by Lopetegui, a whole host of names being mentioned. Uh, Michael Beale stands out for me, quite an interesting potential choice. Nuno going back, Peter Bosch. What do you make of it there, David? Well, what I do think is that they need to appoint a manager very quickly. I know that as a player, that sort of space of limbo that you're in when when there's no manager there, there's no sort of figurehead. Players sort of have their gain their own authority or try and push their own power inside, and it becomes a real imbalance. And and especially if it's somebody that that hasn't been working with the uh, with the first team, this is the case at the moment. You know, if they're coming up from the under twenty ones, they haven't got a real relationship with the players. It's just again, whether it's conscious or subconscious, there's there's going to be a whatever it is, ten twenty percent less in performances, and there's not going to be that intensity in the games and and that real focus that's that's needed. And everyone wants wants to know who's the boss. You know, it, we we don't have these authoritarian figures that that we used to have, but everyone still needs to know that there's a boss there, there's a figurehead, and there's something that work towards and. Give that players a focus, not even just in in games, but give them in training, something to work towards. Because at the moment, nobody knows where they stand. Steve Davis who's in charge now. You know, you're talking about people playing for them. They're not not playing for him, but are they going to give it everything for him? Are they going to be hundred percent in everything that they do? Probably not. And the, the sooner they get a, the somebody into to rectify that, the better. So, Paul, are we in danger of underestimating the physical? pressures on players you know I read that Liverpool are going through a spell of 13 games in 42 days you only have to look around at the number of players now who are out of the World Cup or potentially out of the World Cup Kyle Walker Reese James N'Golo Kante Diogo Jota Alexander Isaac etc 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 is that a coincidence of natural wear and tear or are we seeing here a season which is placing unpardonable burdens on our players? Yeah, I think that's been building for a while, and it's true of other sports as well, cricket and rugby, for example. It, 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 fixture overload is a curse of the modern game, and we're seeing it very clearly in this very unusual season because there's a Winter World Cup slapped in the middle of it, which has produced this compression from summer to autumn of fixtures to get games out of the way before a World Cup starts in Qatar. So, yeah, I, I, the older I get, Mike, the, the more attuned I am, I think, to what the performers, the players have to contribute to keep the show on the road. And when I see, you know, every Tuesday night, every Wednesday night, every Thursday night, these people are playing and every weekend and, and it, it, it just feels like football is on a permanent tap. And it's always there for you. And we take that for granted. We're, you know, we're fans and spectators and addicts. And we watch the players jog out and we just think they're there for our pleasure and entertainment. And they just, they need to charge about. And we, and we, we use this language of intensity and pressing day in, day out. We expect these players to, to press and tackle and run for 90 minutes. And, and then three days later, we expect them to do it again. And I, I just feel that the demands on players in this current cycle, yeah, are certainly completely unreasonable and you can build as big a squad as you like and say you've got a great depth down to 15 or 18 players but I still feel that we're treating 
modern players as automatons. And, you know, the strain is bound to show. Do you agree with that, Dave? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, no matter the advances in sort of how players recover and um, treating injuries, you know, the body can only be stretched so far. Uh, and the, the the pace of the game, the like Paul says, the the intensity, it, it's it it just puts players to breaking point, and they they're just going to um, what what's what's happening now is is all, was always going to happen, and also it it doesn't matter about really if squads have got strength in depth because whenever some like Jurgen Klopp complains about the the, the build up of fixtures, say oh well use your squad, you've got a big squad of players, you know you spent all this money on players, but then on the other side of it. Those people complaining about that or saying that's uh, given that justification for for all these fixtures, they're still the type of people who want their manager to win every football game and be in the best possible shape to win that game, and it just doesn't work together. Mm. How does this leave England in particular, Paul? Now you've lived that team quite literally. You've just written the biography of the of the national team out next week, folks. We're going into this World Cup. It seems to me with quite pronounced and public doubts about Gareth Southgate. Now, how can that be justified? Yeah, I, those doubts to me are, um, some of them are thought out and carefully argued. Some of them are just hysterical. Really what we're saying, or some people are saying, is that a team that's reached tournament semi-final, World Cup semi-final and a European Championship final and lost on penalties is suddenly in some kind of crisis because it's had two bad months. To me, that's crazy. Uh, you know, I can see that there was a lull, there was a drop-off. And I know that there's this uh, endless debate about whether Gareth Southgate is positive enough in his in his tactical thinking. I, you know, I understand all that. But, you know, when you study the 150-year history of the team, as as I've done, and when you think about even the last... The 20 years and what happened in Nice in 2016, if you think about where England were when they lost to Ireland, I mean, that that felt like the end of it to many of us. I mean, England just ceased to be a credible tournament team in 2016 when they lost that game to Iceland. So to see where they are now, their tournament record since has been such a huge improvement and the culture and the ethos of the squad and the feeling around the, the players, the young players, of course you can find fault with it, but to say because they had six bad games or six underwhelming games, that the whole thing's gone off the rails, to me, is crackers. Mm. Is all this criticism and conjecture just an, an inevitable part of the game, David? Yeah, it is. I, I think, you know, what, what's the saying? You know, if, you, if you're successful long enough or stay around long enough, you, it, it's going to come in the end. And I think it's, it's again, it, you know, you go back to, to, to Brendan at Leicester, it, it's, it's this... What can what can uh, Gareth Southgate do next? Apart from you know, the only thing he can do to to make England a better side is to to win every game four nil, and to win the the World Cup, and then what, what then? And then after that, will, will he suffer the same fate as as Champions League winners, Premier League League winners after that? Where you know you win you win a massive trophy in May. When it comes to six, seven, eight games next season, that oh well, you know it's not working anymore. You know the. Uh, Antonio Conte, um, you know, Di Matteo might be a different, a, a different uh, kettle of fish. Thomas Tuchel only twelve months before getting the sacks win the Champions League, and then all of a sudden they're not good enough. You know, it's. I, th- I mean, I think if that happens, Gareth will probably step away from it anyway. In all the discussions about whether England are on the slide or not, 
nobody ever talks about Brazil, Argentina, Germany, Holland, France, Belgium, all the rest of them. So England can be as good as they were in the European Championship last summer and still run up against a better side in, in Qatar. And, you know, again, if, if they do and they get beat by Belgium or Brazil or somebody, there'll be an almighty inquest, understandably. But one of the things we've always done in this country is, is think about the England team in isolation from the rest of the world with this sense of entitlement and this idea that it's Gareth Southgate's job now to win the World Cup because that's the only way he can improve on losing a final on penalties. But that ignores the 10 other countries that could be just as good or better than England, particularly in, on any given day in any tournament match. We're very narrow in our focus. Mm. Is it all getting a bit too overheated, Dave? You know, I'm thinking here of, of you know the fallout from you know what I thought was a fantastically intense game you know, when Liverpool beat Manchester City. It spilled over into all sorts of areas. What have you made of almost the psychodrama that has happened the moment? that the final whistle went, or maybe four minutes before the final whistle went, when Jurgen Klopp was sent off. You know, what are the limits of that protest, for instance? For somebody who's sort of... I've always been quite animated when I've been coaching sort of in, in a dugout. And in the, normally it's the fourth official who's there to, you know, he's the buffer for, for everything. I mean, I, I still always think that regardless of anything else the fourth official is just there to take the heat off the other officials that are trying to do their jobs and you know so they can concentrate on that and certainly some some fourth officials take that on board and know that's what they're there for so they're, 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 they're very clever with the way they deal with managers and try and placate them but I think we're just getting to a point now where it, not just the criticism from managers the way the managers perform at the side of the pitch like Jürgen Klopp did but also with players as well and fans there's just if we take the pressure and all of that away from referees, I'm 100% sure that we will, we will get better decisions. We take that pressure off them, that's, you know, they're, they're going to have a clearer head to make clearer decisions. And I just think that's, that all these directives about you know, respect for referees and officials, it needs to go further than that. Even as a, as a player and as a coach, I know that if, if I'm not screaming at the referee... I'm concentrating more on my team. And if if I'm losing my head at the fourth official, I know that I'm not concentrating and, and have a clear mind to make better decisions myself in the game and, and being focused on things inside the game. So it's something that we need to come away from. Now, how we do that, whether it's whether we just take that away, it's just say that we you know, players and coaches aren't allowed to, to, you know, any sort of dissent towards referees, any sort, zero tolerance. I'm not sure whether how we're going to be able to do that, but it has to come to a point where that's the case because it's beneficial for both the teams, managers, and the referees to be able to, to manage the, the game properly. Because mm, we've almost come full circle here, haven't we, Paul? It all goes down to that P word: pressure. Pressure on managers, pressure on referees, pressure on players, pressure exerted by fans, by clubs. Yes, definitely, uh, and there was. Somebody made the point that a lot of the youth football in Merseyside was cancelled at the weekend because abuse and violence towards match officials has got out of hand, so they just called a halt to it. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that anyone on Merseyside, any mum or dad, can hide behind Jurgen Klopp as an excuse and say, well, but he screamed at the fourth official, therefore it's OK for me to do it. I mean, that's, you know, that's pathetic to transfer responsibility for that on to Jurgen Klopp, but it certainly can't help 
if you've got the Liverpool manager on that weekend treating the uh, a match official in that way, and I think, I think yeah, the, the match the fourth official should be called the lightning rod, not the fourth official. <laughs> uh, and it and it's, it's it's grotesque that you you stick a person there in a in a in a uniform and expect him to um to soak up all the angst of 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 managers. And yeah, I find it I find it increasingly distasteful, and I think it it sort of sends a message that that's the way football is and it doesn't have to be that way who says that football has to be like that yeah well Jurgen Klopp has rightly apologised and faces FA punishment the images of him reflected the ugliness of an increasingly dangerous rivalry this is a perfect storm of performative anger tribal tension mistrust and paranoia no excuses but abuse has become institutionalised all managers use refereeing decisions as diversions. VAR is a source of understandable frustration. Fans hardly help with their conspiracy theories about supposed bias. Clubs are becoming politicised. Now, everyone has to draw back from the brink here. Otherwise, the game won't be worth a light. In that spirit... Thanks to Brendan for his time, and of course, thanks to Paul and David for their insights. Thanks also to you for your feedback. It's much appreciated. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.